In Philippians chapter 3, Paul writes these words to the Philippians, beginning in verse 12. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended, but one thing I do, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us be of the same mind. Notice in verse 13, Paul utters an interesting phrase. The state of our world today makes it even more interesting. Paul writes, but one thing I do. In a culture where we're told everything is possible, why would you want to limit yourself to one thing? Why restrict yourself to just a single thing when today's world offers multiple options? For example, in one local supermarket, a researcher found 93 types of toothpaste, 93, 91 varieties of shampoo, and 115 different household cleaners. Today's American consumers have available seemingly endless choices. It used to be such a simple task. Kathy would ask me to go to the grocery store and bring home some orange juice. Honey, can you just pick up some orange juice? No big deal. But today, this is a stressful ordeal. It requires a litany of advanced questions. Honey, what kind of orange juice? Lots of pulp? No pulp? Some pulp? Calcium? Fiber? Low-acid orange juice? Light and healthy? Omega-3? Antioxidant? I mean, the list goes on and on. (laughs) Buying orange juice is no longer a simple procedure. Neither is buying that snack food staple that we all love, Cheez-Its. I mean, if anything ought to be a pleasantly impulsive, thoughtless decision, it should be purchasing a box of Cheez-Its to just take home and veg out. But today, choosing Cheez-Its is an excruciating task. What variety do I buy? Baby Swiss, Cheddar Jack, Mozzarella, White Cheddar, Hot and Spicy, Four Cheese, Kobe, Provolone, Pepper Jack, Asiego, Whole, not Whole Grain, it's Cheez-Its, Grooves, Zings, Duos, Reduced Fat, Extra Toasty, hey, you have to choose from among over 27 flavors and styles just to pick out a box of Cheez-Its. Today, jeans come flared, bootlegged, skinny, cropped, straight, low-rise, bleach-rinsed, dark-washed, or distressed. Poor teenagers today. To communicate, teenagers can surf, chat, 
tweet, zap, poke, text. They can even talk to someone. <laughs> Video and music gets uploaded and viewed and recorded and downloaded and streamed. Lattes come in tall, short, skinny, decaf, flavored, ice, spiced, and frappe, whatever that is. Hey, to confuse our lives even further, I've heard that Starbucks and Cheez-Its are about to collaborate on a brand new flavor of those famous crackers. Check this out. Mocha Frappuccino Cheez-Its. I think it's a joke, but I'm not sure. Here's my point. With all of this freedom to choose whatever we want, you'd think it would enhance the quality of our lives. Instead, it has done just the opposite. In her book, Choice, Renata Selekel, she asked this question. How is it that this increase in choice through which we can supposedly customize our lives and make them perfect leads not to more satisfaction, but rather to greater anxiety and greater feelings of inadequacy and guilt? Hey, with all of our endless choices, we have now subjected ourselves to the unnecessary stress and pressure of constantly making decisions about stuff that's really not going to matter. And after we choose, then we have that buyer's remorse. We're saddled with regret of making the less than perfect choice, knowing that we had so many other choices that we could have choose from. It seems that the more choices we're presented, the more complicated and complex our lives become. But what if I could introduce you to a different kind of life? A life of true freedom. A simpler and uncomplicated way to live where your choices were clear and precise and fulfilling. A focused life with no regret and with no guilt. This was the life that Paul lived. And it's summarized by this interesting phrase in verse 13. But one thing I do. Our text this morning actually begins in verse 12. Paul writes this. Not that I have already attained or am already perfected. Now remember, Paul had a goal. He had a driving passion in his life. He wrote of it back in verse 10. That I may know him, that is know Christ, and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings. And what a worthwhile ambition to pursue, to know the Savior of the world, our Creator, our Sustainer, our Redeemer, the Lord Jesus himself. You see, to know Jesus isn't just acquainting yourself with the historical facts about his life on earth. It's not just to read and to study his teachings. It's not even just to familiarize yourself with the spiritual implications of what he's accomplished. No, when Paul speaks of knowing Jesus, he's talking of knowing him relationally and spiritually and personally in real time. Knowing Jesus as in meeting him and living in an awareness of his presence. Experience his power in your life. Even be brought in to his pain and his sufferings. This is the kind of knowledge of Jesus that Paul talks about. Even prior to becoming a Christian, Paul had hoped to know God. 
He viewed the rigors of Judaism as a way to achieve his goal, but it had failed him. Rather than make Paul righteous and pleasing to God, it had exposed his unrighteousness, and it even made him more self-righteous. Paul lived blinded and apart from God until he was introduced to what he calls the righteousness of God by faith. You see, there is a goodness that we can achieve that doesn't stem from what we do or don't do. It's the product of what Jesus did on the cross. Hey, Jesus died in our place, was punished for our sin, gained for us a permanent pardon, then rose from the dead to grant us new and never-ending life. This right status with God was given to Paul freely, a reward for nothing he had done but his faith. Paul received elite member status in God's family, all because of what Jesus had done for him. And did you know this elite member status is available to us? If you'll humble yourself, if you'll admit your sin and your failure and your own inadequacy, and if you'll muster the faith to receive what you could never earn on your own, that's when you become right with God. It's righteousness by faith. But this is just a means to an end. You see, righteousness is the key that unlocks the door. Righteousness is what gets you in the room. Oh, but there's more. For once inside, we can know Christ, all his beauty, all his blessings. A whole world, whole new world opens up to the believer. It's like C.S. Lewis's famous analogy. It's C.S. Lewis's wardrobe. You've probably read his novel, maybe seen his movie, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe. Four British children are evacuated from London during the bombings of World War II. They're moved out to this stately country manor. One day, the kids are exploring this huge big house. When the youngest child, Lucy, she steps into a wardrobe, sort of a standalone clothes closet. But when she exits the other side, she finds herself in a fairy tale forest of talking animals and imaginary creatures, new adventures unfold for her in the land of Narnia. Of course, Lewis's story was meant to be allegorical of the Christian life. This is what happens to the person who embraces Jesus. He or she is suddenly made a child of God. The sin that once separate us, separated us from God is now erased. Our inadequacies are overcome. We can now know Christ, his resurrection power even the fellowship of his caring heart. It all ushers us into new places and into fresh adventures. You see, our righteousness is like a telescope. A telescope is not for looking at, it's for looking through. You don't say haughtily, oh, look at me. I'm somebody, I'm righteous, I'm now a child of God. You don't say that. No, now that you're righteous, you can know him. You can look at him. Righteousness is a gift that we can now, through which now we can now get to know Jesus. And Paul admits that he's just a beginner when it comes to this new life in Christ. He pins these words, not that I have already attained. Now remember, when Paul wrote this to the Philippians, he had already been a Christian for 30 years. 
Yet he admits there's more to Christ than he's experienced. There's more to know and more to understand and more to taste. You see, to know Jesus is an inexhaustible experience. It's a well so cavernous, its depths can never be plunged. You remember Peter the fisherman, he met Jesus on the banks of the Sea of Galilee. Little did he know that one day he would write in his letter, His divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him. Peter looked back on his life and he realized that knowing Jesus was the key. It had unlocked everything he needed for life and godliness. I've heard it put, the Christian life is a river so shallow, the smallest child can stand in its current with no fear of drowning. Yet it's so deep, the most brilliant theologian can swim in it forever and never touch bottom. Paul is well aware that there is more in Christ than he has obtained. He also wants us to know that he's not yet perfected. In fact, the more Paul grew in his fellowship with Jesus, the more aware he became of his own sins and shortcomings. In 1 Corinthians 15, it's a passage that was written around 55 AD, about 20 years after Paul's conversion. There he refers to himself as the least of all the apostles. Fast forward those seven years. Oh, around 62 AD, when Paul wrote to the Ephesians, he called himself the less of the least of all the saints. But then flash ahead three more years to 64 AD, 65 AD. Now he speaks of himself among sinners whom I am chief. Understand this. The more light Paul received, the darker his own sin seemed. In his mind, he went from being the least of the apostles to the less than the least of the saints, to be in the chief of sinners. And what happened to him is what happens to us. The longer we know Christ, the more we realize how undeserving we are of the privilege. None of us has obtained perfection. We're all still a work in progress. Paul writes, not that I have already attained or am already perfected, but I press on that I may lay hold of that for which Christ Jesus has also laid hold of me. Paul's goal in knowing Christ was first Christ's goal in saving Paul. His driving passion was the passion that drove Jesus to the cross. Jesus had first laid hold of Paul so that Paul could lay hold of Jesus, so that Paul could know him personally. And we need to realize how desperate Jesus is to fellowship with us. Did you know that desire is what drew Jesus to the cross? He's made a way now. He's extended an invitation. Now it's rude for us not to RSVP. This is why Paul says, I press on. He hopes to show the same determination in knowing Jesus that Jesus showed in saving Paul. Paul was willing to give his all. This Greek word press, it implies a prolonged pursuit. It embodies two characteristics, intensity and longevity. You could say that Paul put on a full court press to know Jesus. And it kept going the entirety of his life. If you've ever played competitive basketball, you know that when a coach presses, it wraps up, ratchets up the intensity. 
Oppressed is when your team plays defense from baseline to baseline. You no longer are giving the person you're covering a little cushion. No, you lock down your opponent. You get in his grill. A full-court press is controlled mayhem. And this is the kind of intensity that Paul put into knowing Christ. Again, this Greek term translated press, it came from the world of athletics and warfare. It spoke of something rigorous and physical and strenuous, a blood, sweat, and tears kind of effort, sort of a sanctified violence. In fact, this is what Jesus meant with his cryptic words back in Matthew chapter 11 when he said, from the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven suffers violence and the violent take it by force. Understand, God's kingdom provokes aggressive action. No one just sits on their hands in the face of God's kingdom. Hey, when God invades a life or a church or a town, whoever the establishment consists of feels threatened. God's kingdom is a coup d'etat. It's a leadership takeover. Some people resist it by fighting back and asserting their own will. Others welcome God's kingdom and join its ranks to help in its progress. But nobody responds just passively. Nobody just lets it happen. When God's kingdom comes, you either meet God with open hands or with clenched fists. But it provokes a reaction. See, here's the paradox. Righteousness is gained not by us trying, but by us trusting. Yet you build up that trust. When you press on, faith isn't passive, it's active. Paul presses. He spends serious energy over long periods of time to achieve his goal of knowing Jesus. He studied, he prayed, he persisted, he pursued for a lifetime. Are you pressing on to know Jesus Christ? Again, Paul doesn't want us to think that he's arrived in the faith. He repeats himself in verse 13. Brethren, I do not count myself to have apprehended. Hey, we're all pressing. I've heard the Christian life described as a long obedience in the same direction. The goal for you and I is to never stop growing. Coming to Christ is just the starting point. It's not the end. I've heard it said, the largest room in the world is the room for improvement. We should never stop pressing on. Paul continues in verse 13, but one thing I do, and here is that interesting phrase. Notice Paul's laser focus. It's one thing I do, not these 50 things I dabble in. There are a million activities in this life that will distract us from knowing Jesus. We have to streamline our priorities. Intensity is the watchword. On September the 8th, 2015, a British Airways jet caught fire on the Las Vegas airport runway. The left engine of the 777 blew out. Flames were shooting out from around the fuselage. Smoke billowed from the cabin of the plane. It was alarming enough to see a burning jetliner, but what was more concerning were the passengers. For even though they had been told to evacuate the plane immediately, the passengers were seen leaving the plane carrying their luggage. They had grabbed their carry-ons and pulled them off the plane. 
Now you think, what's wrong with grabbing your carry-on? The plane's burning. You want to get your stuff out of there. Well, an airplane evacuation gets delayed by five seconds per passenger whenever they reach for their luggage. That means that if just half of the plane's 170 messengers reach for a carry-on, that would add a full seven minutes to the time the last passenger was stuck in the smoke-filled cabin. Someone made the comment about the incident. People love their carry-ons more than life itself. I hope that's not true of you and I. Everything in our lives apart from Jesus is a carry-on. I hope you know that. It's the baggage of this life. Jesus is life itself. Jesus alone is eternal life. Trust me, you won't need a thing this world has to offer where you're headed if you know Christ. We need to be careful that it doesn't get in our way now. Every four years, the Olympic Games convene, and we get to watch the best athletes in the world compete with one another. And for many of these young men and women, all their lives have looked forward to their brief performance. They've sacrificed activities and vacations that other kids have enjoyed. Hours of training and exercise have been concentrated on this single opportunity. Everything has been aimed and has been working toward this goal. To be an Olympic athlete, you have to adopt the same mentality by which Paul lived his life. You have to be a one-thing person. Hey, you don't get to the level of an Olympic gymnast or swimmer or runner or pole vaulter by laying by the pool with your butts. You know, Michael Phelps didn't get to be a great swimmer by playing video games. I'll bet no one has ever heard of an Olympic athlete described as a jack-of-all-trades. It just doesn't work that way. You have to specialize. You have to focus. And the same is true in the Christian life. You've got to have a one thing mentality. You've got to focus in on what you want. You've got to know Christ. Now, sure, we go to work. We play with our kids. We keep up our house. We do the stuff that needs to get done, certainly. But for a serious Christian, it all gets framed around one driving passion to know Jesus. J.I. Packer writes, once you become aware that the main business you are here for is to know God, most of life's problems fall into place of their own accord. All the stuff I do should really have just one end. In my marriage, my wife and I are seeking to know Christ. As I parent my kids, I'm seeking to know my father in heaven. On my job, I look to know Christ. When you meet Sandy Adams and size him up, I hope you realize that my end game, my motive behind all that I think and do is to know Jesus Christ. And as we move through life and as we deal with our stuff, even with the million other things vying for our attention, we should never get distracted from knowing Christ. As Christians, this is how we've been called to live. We are to possess a one-thing-I-do mentality. But Paul adds, forgetting those things which are behind. For Satan often distracts us from knowing Christ by bringing up and dwelling on our past. You need to know the devil is an astute historian. It's been said, his goal is to make us remember those things we ought to forget 
and to forget the things we ought to remember. And Satan is ingenious at this. He's ingenious at using our past to distract us from Christ's presence. Whether he conjures up sins that have already been forgiven and tries to weigh us down with guilt, or whether he glamorizes our former lifestyle and causes us to forget the pain that it caused. Satan has different tactics, different methods, but he always wants to bring to the foreground those things which are behind. Earlier in the chapter, you remember Paul listed the achievements of his former life. He had been a Hebrew of the Hebrews. He had this proper Jewish genealogy. He was also a Pharisee. He was dedicated to keeping the law. As to pedigree and zealotry, Paul had the proper religious credentials. Hey, when Paul walked into a room, he was somebody. He built an identity around his self-righteousness. He viewed himself as a self-made saint. And he was quite proud of the person he had become. That is, until he met Jesus. And it forced him to do a quick calculation. He tells us, But what things were gained to me, these I have counted lost for Christ. Yes, indeed, I also count all things lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish that I may gain Christ. All his former life had meant to him, he now judged as worthless. He called it rubbish, literally manure. But you can believe that Satan continually tried to regurgitate the pride that Paul had swallowed. He was constantly bringing up what he had been, aspects of his former life that brought him pleasure or gave him kudos. He hoped to get Paul to revert back to a former self. And this is also what Satan will try with you. Whether your past life was characterized by self-righteousness or by unrighteousness, Satan will pull out aspects of what you were that might appeal to you now. Stuff that you were proud of, stuff that brought you pleasure, that made you somebody then, he tempts you with now. This is why Paul tells us, forgetting those things which are behind. Hey, both the good and the bad can trip us up. Our former good can inflame our pride or can bring back some forbidden pleasure that God dealt with and we rid our lives of, while our former bad buries us under a mound of condemnation. This is why a big part of the Christian life is forgetting those former things altogether. Hey, the past is the past. Hey, you can have your regrets, but don't dwell on them. You can know your victories, but don't dwell on them. Let your past remind you, but not define you. Don't make a monument out of past successes or failures. And here's why. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17 tells us how to focus. Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. Old things have passed away. Behold, all things have become new. That means that I'm no longer the person I once was. And going back to that former identity will only cause trouble. You know, often we get nostalgic about the good old days. You know, back when we were carefree, when we were just hanging out with our buds and drinking too many buds. But we forget the hangovers and the bondage and the damage we did to ourselves and to relationships. 
forgetting those things which are behind. The life Jesus has for you is infinitely better than what you've left. Understand, my knowledge of what goes on in the federal government's witness protection plan is limited to what I see on Blue Bloods on television. Frank Reagan and I, we got this down. But on Blue Bloods, when Detective Danny, when his key witness against the mob, you know, gets threatened, they relocate him. The guy gets a new name. He gets a new job. He gets a new address. He gets a whole new identity. Yet he also gets a warning. They tell him, never come back to your old life. Never go back to your old life. You resurface in your old life and you will have blown your protection. It's only going to cause trouble. But did you know the same is true for a Christian? In Christ, your past is forgotten. It's forgiven. Your future is bright. But if you go back from where you came, trouble will raise its ugly head. Christ has set us free not to back up, but to press on. You know, years ago, the psychological fad was dredging up hidden memories. Perhaps you remember that. Folks taught that the reason people stayed stuck in their sin and in their depression was because of unresolved memories that lingered in their subconscious. So victims were led down this path of regurgitating and reliving their past. The only problem with that is that it's not biblical. It's not a biblical solution. Hey, if there's an issue that you know of that needs to be dealt with, then deal with it. Forgive it or forget it or confess it, but deal with it. But the Bible never tells us to go on a wild goose chase down memory lane. Paul's instructions is just the opposite. Not to conjure up the past, but to forget those things which are behind. Back in my baseball coaching days, I miss those days. I had this saying that I used to drill into my players whenever one of the kids made a mistake, booted a ground ball or struck out or whatever. I'd always tell him, I would say, son, put it behind and make up your mind. My kids, kids on my team, they heard me say that once. They heard me say it a million times. Put it behind and make up your mind. But that's what you and I need to do when we sin or when we stumble or when we find ourselves flirting with former things or piddling around with our past. We need to repent and get back to where we belong. Hey, put it behind and make up your mind. Remember that in Christ, you're a new creation. This is what Jesus said in Luke chapter 9. No one having put his hand to the plow and looking back is fit for the kingdom of God. If you want to follow Jesus, you can't constantly be looking over your shoulder or reliving past regrets or worrying about the what ifs. You need to press on. You know, farmers say you can't plow a straight furrow if you're always looking backward. You end up with waves, not rows. You plow a crooked row when you're looking over your shoulder. Likewise, you can't live for Jesus while you're living in the past. Past weaknesses rob us of our present hope. Past failures undermine our faith today. Past affections steal away our passion. Past attractions subvert our focus. Even past successes create us great pride and lull us to sleep. The whole point is not to live in the past, but in the present. 
we should handle our past like you would your rearview mirror. You know, occasional glance, that's okay. It can even be helpful. But if you focus on your rearview mirror, you've taken your eyes off the road ahead. You're headed for a crash. It's been said, live with your back to the past, your hands to the plow, and your eyes to the future. Paul writes, forgetting those things which are behind and reaching forward to those things which are ahead. Notice Paul is painting a picture of a competitive runner at the finish line. He's stretching out to break the tape. Again, the idea is intensity. Are you passe and nonchalant, or is there a seriousness about your faith? Every Christian needs to live their life with a forward lean. Paul's imagery here reminds me of Michael Phelps, the greatest Olympic swimmer of all time. Phelps had many, many dramatic races, but none more so than in the 2008 Olympics in Beijing. Over the 100-meter butterfly, Phelps trailed for 99.9 meters. But in the last fraction of a second, he reached the wall with one strong final stroke. In contrast, his Serbian competitor, who had led the entire race, coasted those last few inches. Phelps touched the wall just ahead of the Serb to win the gold. Michael Phelps' wall-to-wall mentality is what won the race. And this is what it takes in the Christian life, a wall-to-wall intensity. Hey, none of us knows the exact location of our finish line. That's why we have to always be stretching. Pastor Gordon McDonald, he tells the story of his days running track. His freshman year in college, his coach invited him for dinner one night. After a good meal, the coach opened up a booklet with Gordon's name on the front. He turned to the back page, which was entitled June 1957, three and a half years into the future. The coach said, these are the races that I've scheduled for you to run four years from now. And here are the times that you'll achieve. McDonald writes, I looked at those times and thought, impossible. These were light years away from where I was at that moment. But then the coach started turning back the pages. He showed Gordon the 42-month workout program that he had scheduled for his young runner. You see, the coach's plan focused on where Gordon could be and a way to get him there. The coach was reaching for what was ahead, not looking back on what was behind. And this is how you live the Christian life. Following Jesus requires a forward focus. You forget your past, your failures, your losses, hey, even your triumphs. You start looking optimistically to the future and what God plans to do. If you're with Jesus, one thing is certain, it's only going to get better. Have you ever heard of a phenomenalist? Anybody ever heard of a phenomenalist? I stumped the panel about that. That's a fancy name for a tightrope walker. There's actually schools that you can go to to become a phenomenalist. Yet every wannabe phenomenalist who steps on the wire for the first time makes the very same mistake. You know what they do? Their first instinct when they step on that tightrope is to look down. 
If you've ever watched an accomplished phenumbalist, a tightrope walker, you'll notice that he never looks down at the wire. He never looks down. He never even looks beside himself. He always keeps his head focused forward. He looks to the platform where he's headed. He looks to the ultimate destination. And this is how you live the Christian life. Rather than allow your past life to derail you, rather than let the world's many options and choices distract you, you take your one thing and you pursue it into the future. Paul writes in verse 14, I press toward the goal for the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. You remember when we were kids, I'd love to get those boxes of Cracker Jacks. In fact, I still love Cracker Jacks. I mean, what's there not to love about Cracker Jacks? Sweet, tasty popcorn, along with some peanuts thrown in there for good measure. I mean, what more could you want? What a snack. But the real treat when you got those Cracker Jacks was the prize inside. Oh, the prize inside. With that box of Cracker Jacks, you not only got the snack, but you got the prize. Well, the upward call of God is to know Jesus. But with that call comes a prize. The prize of knowing Jesus is to be like him. For Jesus rubs off on the people who worship him. The more you hang out with Jesus, the more you get to know him, the more you'll be like him. That's what 2 Corinthians 3 tells us. We all with unfailed vase face, beholding as in a mirror the glory of the Lord, are being transformed into the same image from glory to glory, just as by the Spirit of the Lord. Here's why knowing Jesus is the highest goal, why it's the upward call. The more we get to know him, the more we become like him. In a world of endless options, of deafening noises, of reverberating distractions, to hear the upward call of God in Christ is truly a gift of God's grace. And yet, do you know how few people hear this upward call? Well, perhaps everybody hears it at some point in their life, but do you realize how few people respond? Most folks are content to keep their head down, or maybe their head in the sand, and just trudge through life. There's a New York ophthalmologist that claims there are more nearsighted people per capita in New York City than in any other location in the world. And here's why. City dwellers who live among the skyscrapers are hemmed in on all sides by walls that they can't see over. They lack the opportunity to see at a distance. And as a result, they lack long-range vision. All they see are their immediate surroundings, what's just around their feet. There is, though, a cure. They could look up. And not just above the city, but they could look to God and to the things of God, to a life that is higher, that is above what preoccupies the city, to higher purposes and higher values. In fact, in next week's text, in the next few verses, Paul is going to challenge us to look up. He reminds us that we're citizens of heaven and we should live like it. And yet, sadly, most people never do. They never look up. This even happens to Christians. We get embroiled in the daily grind. 
We run on life's treadmill. We're just about getting through the next day. We seldom hear God's upward call, let alone respond positively to it. Trust me, there is more than what you know if you know Jesus. And he is calling. He's calling you to look up. Paul wraps up his thoughts in verse 15. Therefore, let us, as many as are mature, have this mind. And if in anything you think otherwise, God will reveal even this to you. To live a successful Christian life, put on a full court press. Be intense and serious about your faith. Forget your former life. Stretch out into God's future. Heed his upward call, whose prize is Christ himself. And perhaps most importantly, rather than get bogged down with all the world's options, rather than get paralyzed by too many choices, have a one-thing mentality. Seek to know Christ, the greatest and highest prize. Paul is confident that God's Spirit will reveal these truths to those who trust Him. Verse 16, Nevertheless, to the degree that we have already attained, let us walk by the same rule Let us be of the same mind. In other words, let's all press on together with the same mentality. Let's all focus on knowing Jesus.